0: The clock has officially started. Today, the judge overseeing Donald Trump's civil fraud case officially entered into the record an order that forces Trump to pay the $454 million, including interest, he owes the state of New York within the next 30 days. Mr. Trump will also have to make a daily interest payment of $111,000 for each day he does not fork up the cash. If you're doing the math at home here, that is another million dollars roughly every nine days. Not long after that order came down today, Trump's attorneys in the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit filed a motion to request extra time to pay the $83 million he owes in that case. Between these two lawsuits, Donald Trump is on the hook for more than half a billion dollars. And it is totally unclear if Donald Trump actually has that much money at his disposal. Trump claimed in a deposition last April that his business had $400 million of cash on hand, which is a lot of money. But it is considerably less than what he owes right now. New York Attorney General Letitia James has already said she will start seizing Trump's assets if he does not pay. So Donald Trump is in a bind. He could try to borrow the $454 million he owes New York State, but that would require someone to actually lend Trump that much money. And Donald Trump already owes a lot of money to a lot of people. We don't have a completely current snapshot of Trump's finances, but according to the financial disclosure forms he filed to run for president in 2024, as of a year ago, Trump owed more than $50 million for the mortgage on Trump Tower— at least another 50 million for the mortgage on his Doral golf course, more than 50 million for the mortgage on 40 Wall Street, between five and 25 million for the mortgage at Mar-a-Lago, same for the mortgage at Trump Plaza, and for his Seven Springs golf course, and for his hotel in New York, and the one in Chicago. All told, Donald Trump owed as much as $375 million for the mortgages on just his properties alone. Now, all of that might be normal for a real estate empire. But what will Trump's creditors think about his ability to pay back those loans now that he's on the hook for nearly half a billion dollars in fines and that he's facing federal criminal prosecution in multiple states? the banks and financial institutions that lent Donald Trump hundreds of millions of dollars to help build and expand the Trump brand, they cannot be happy right now. Will any of them really want to loan Donald Trump any more money? Could they start demanding he pay back the money he owes them presently? Well, there's actually a historical precedent for all of this. Back in the early 1990s, Trump's business empire was on the brink of insolvency. He had stretched himself thin with casinos in Atlantic City and a fancy yacht and, for whatever reason, his own airline company. Trump had borrowed a ton of money from the banks to pay for all of this. And these businesses were not doing well, so the banks got together and decided it was time to rein in Donald Trump's finances.
1: Trump had long cast himself as a winner, now he was looking like a loser. As quickly as the banks loved him, that's as quick as they saw him as a pariah. He was like, ugh, it's Donald Trump. They they didn't want to have anything to do with him. They wanted their money and they wanted to be rid of Donald Trump. The bankers descended on Trump Tower.
2: When you were talking to him in these meetings, it just didn't seem that he had any idea how big the problem was or how it would be resolved. But he, as far as being a CEO, in understanding numbers, and understanding the ramifications, it doesn't seem like he took economics or accounting in college.
1: They sold the yacht and the airline. Trump may have to unload the Trump shuttle. Worth about and they put Trump on a $450,000 a month allowance. In exchange, he would continue to promote the business.
0: That is the real story of Donald Trump's business legacy. The man who inherited a real estate empire from his father dug himself into such deep financial trouble that he had to be bailed out by the very banks that lent him money in the first place. And then he did it all over again. Trump has repeatedly schemed his way into convincing people to give him money, whether he is defrauding banks about the value of his real estate holdings or convincing his most loyal supporters to pay for his legal bills. Donald Trump has usually found a way to get other people to pick up the tab for him. But now, for the first time, he is facing accountability for his scheming right here in New York, the state that bore the brunt of his chicanery for decades. And so it is fitting that the person who helped put all of this in motion, the investigation that led to this landmark $450 million ruling against Donald Trump, was a congresswoman from New York. It was five years ago when Donald Trump's fixer Michael Cohen was called up to Capitol Hill to testify about his former boss. A lot of the questioning focused on Trump's racism and his hush money payments and his potential ties to Russia during the 2016 campaign. But when newly elected Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was called on, she focused on a relatively obscure part of Donald Trump's business dealings.
2: To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. Who else knows that the president did this?
1: Alan Weisselberg, Ron Lieberman, and Matthew Calamari.
2: And where would the committee find more information on this? Do you think we need to review his financial statements and his tax returns in order to compare them?
1: Yes, and you'd find it at the Trump org.
0: That moment set in motion a line of inquiry that led to the order today filed a few hours ago. And now Donald Trump has just 30 days to pay the state of New York nearly half a billion dollars and counting. Joining me now to discuss is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She represents, of course, the 14th District of New York. It's great to see you. Thank
2: you. Great to see you in
0: person, no less. Um, So my first is just it's amazing watching that tape. And I wonder if, you know, that was, I think, your fresh that was your freshman year. Yeah, one of my first hearings as well. Um, did you ever imagine that that line of inquiry would lead to the moment we find ourselves in now?
2: I mean, I don't think anybody saw the scale and the degree to the of this ruling that has come down. But I think even when Donald Trump was first running in 2016, people did say nobody knows Donald Trump like New Yorkers do. Yeah. And he had such a notorious reputation for this kind of shady dealing in construction, in real estate, in contracting, famous for not really paying out his contracts and fleecing working people all across New York City. We knew him as a fraud for longer and better than almost anybody else in the country. Um, And really, that line of questioning uh, that we just saw was inspired by Trump links, which is right by the bridge that connects uh, the Bronx and Queens, which is in which is the borough that I rep the, the two boroughs that I represent. And I drive across that bridge all the time, you know, going from from family to family, visiting in the community. And that also was built using a public private land deal. And so we know that there are so many of these shady dealings that are going on. And not only was this just an example of Donald Trump, uh, you know, defrauding for his own personal enrichment, but also fleecing the working people yeah. of New York City in order to enrich himself.
0: Yeah. I, 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 we, were, we didn't have, we don't, we never, we never have enough time, yeah. but um, that you begin that line of questioning or ended it talking about driving by that golf course. And yeah. it sounds like the Trump name became almost talismanic, representative of this inequity, this this two-tiered system, mm-hmm. everything that's kind of wrong with the world. And I guess I just wonder, sort of as a New Yorker, yeah. as a person that is trying to make change in government, mm-hmm. Sort of what this moment means, means for you. I mean, this is the day when the order's gone through, the mm-hmm. clock starts ticking, $111,000 of interest accrues every single day that Donald Trump doesn't pay this. Mm-hmm. He seems to be having money problems. His lawyers are saying, can we push off the date by which we have to pay this, both here and in the E. Jean Carroll case? What does the moment feel like for you as you watch this all unfold?
2: You know, I think it's, a, it's, it's such an important moment because in this country, in this moment— we as Americans have gotten so used to the wealthy committing financial crimes and fleecing working people and getting away with it time after time after time. That golf course that, that was there and Trump links, just at the edge of it is NYCHA public housing. Mm. And you have people who can't even get adequate heat in the wintertime that, that are, that are up on a high-rise apartment or an apartment several, you know, many feet up in the air, and they have to overlook this golf course that is, that was subsidized with public resources when they can't even be sure that they're drinking water that doesn't have lead in it. And so to me, what this ruling finally starts to represent is that the buck is starting to stop here. Donald Trump has been able to play the shell game and he's been able to swap one debt for another and one leverage for another. And now with this ruling, the state of New York is saying you actually have to pay up now. And our hope is that with those assets, when we return them back to the public, that they can be used to further, not only, not only further the, the, the good of the public, but also to send a message that this is a justice system that you cannot and should not buy your way out of. And for too long, the wealthy have. And so this is not just about Trump. I think this should be a message to all. Uh, all people who think that that they can fleece this system and get away with behavior like this that comes at the cost of everyday working families. It's so interesting that you say that because the Trumps have said
0: this decision is going to ruin New York. New York is over. By virtue of holding us accountable for bad behavior, fraudulent behavior, everyone's going to leave. Right. I don't know what that says <laughs> about New York. I think we actually had the sound. Can we hear what Eric Trump had to say about his father's travails?
3: You have a lost state right now where you have businesses fleeing, fleeing, fleeing. And you have a company like ours that have paid over $300 million in taxes to a city. My father built the skyline of New York City. And this is the thanks he gets.
0: Just architecturally, I take issue with the idea that Donald (laughs) Trump built the skyline, maybe like the Trump developments on the Upper West Side. But (laughs) um, I mean, what do you say to that? Because as much as it's sort of comic that the Trumps Mm -hmm. are saying the Mm -hmm. departure of Donald Trump's going to ruin New York, You know, you can see how this line that New York is anti-business titan might have some resonance in certain certain circles. And I wonder what your response to that would be. New
2: York is so anti-business that Wall Street is located here, that Midtown Manhattan is soaring up Billionaire's Row, you know, that that we have— the top 1% not only in the United States but globally constantly trying to purchase up and gobble up real estate here something tells me that that is full of hot air and in fact when we want to talk about New York City and who is leaving there is this there is such a an interest in peddling this myth and this lie that Having a fair and enforcing a fair tax system is causing the wealthy to flee when the data actually shows that it's the opposite. Rent in New York City, just like across the rest of this country, has gotten out of control. Our housing crisis it has has gotten to such epic proportions that not just the poor, the working class, the middle class, upper middle class people can't even afford to live in the city anymore. If anyone is leaving, it is the actual people that make New York City work. It's the working class. And so, uh, you know, to Eric Trump, I'd say, you know what, you can let go a couple of those towers and maybe we turn them into public housing so people can actually afford to live here. Put that on a
0: (laughs) mug. Um, I do want to ask you, because we're talking about this moment where it seems like there's accountability, if not a downright reckoning. Are you worried at all about whether the criminal justice system will actually hold Donald Trump into account? And I want to ask you this as someone who survived January 6th. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a viscerally terrifying moment from you, from the accounts you've shared publicly. It is something the House explored robustly through the January 6th committee, but some, something that the Department of Justice appeared sort of slow to take up in terms of its investigation and prosecution of Donald Trump. I, yeah, I I do have extraordinary concern about it. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of, if you had
2: a message to Merrick Garland um, in this moment as a Democrat who sort of understands what that moment meant for the country? For me, it's not even as a Democrat, but it's as an American. Are we really going to see what happened on January 6th and not have serious consequence for it? If we do not issue if there is not a clear proceeding that is swift, it's not, this is not just about an individual case. This is about the message that this sends for our democracy. And if there is not clarity on how unacceptable and how clear the crimes were that happened on January 6th and leading up to January 6th, then we are creating an open question about whether this is acceptable or not. And that cuts to the core, not just of our justice system, but to our democracy. And we are hurtling towards an election where you have a Donald Trump who is more desperate than he has ever been, particularly with this financial ruling, more financially desperate than he's ever been. He was hoarding classified documents about US national security secrets in Mar-a-Lago. And we don't know the full extent, but what I believe is that Donald Trump would sell this country for a dollar if he thinks that it would benefit himself. And when you have a settlement of over $400 million, We need to be really serious about the stakes of what's happening here. Yeah, and find out if anybody
0: posts bond for him, who those people actually are. Mm -hmm. Who has half a billion dollars laying around? Okay, please stay with us. Please, please don't leave. We have a lot more to ask you about, including Republican hypocrisy on immigration and cruelty on child labor. That's just ahead.
1: Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download.
0: For some years now, Republicans have been ringing alarms about the southern border.
3: America's
1: border is under siege. We've seen the catastrophic consequences of Joe Biden's open border policies. They are totally leaving the borders
4: open. I told the president what I have been saying for many months, and that is that we must have change at the border, substantive policy change. We must insist that the border be the top priority. I I think we have some consensus around that table. Everyone understands the urgency of that, and we're going to continue to press for it.
0: As late as December of last year, Republicans were so incensed about what was happening at the border that they were demanding legislation. It was an invasion and nothing was more urgent. And then at the start of this month, they were given what they had been begging for legislation, legislation featuring severe border restrictions. Republicans did not pass it. They did not even vote on it because Donald Trump does not want to fix the border problem that Republicans have been monomaniacally focused on for years now. Instead, he would prefer to keep it a political cudgel in an election year. So Republicans killed the legislation and came up with a new line of attack. Joe Biden needs to fix the border by himself.
4: He has a broad arsenal of executive authority that he could use right now. He could have used yesterday. He could have used months ago to stem the flow.
0: Once again, President Biden has met Republicans where they stand. The White House is reportedly considering new executive action that would effectively shut down the border temporarily in certain circumstances. But in the meantime, all the major players here seem to have lost sight of what immigration means for America. That migrants are part of the fabric of this country and a crucial part of its workforce. They often do the jobs that no one else wants to do in some of the most labor-intensive industries. As Republicans in Congress try to crack down on immigration, this is the current reality in some Republican-led states. Alone and exploited, migrant children work brutal jobs. Mississippi Slaughterhouse is directly responsible for death of migrant teen who was sucked into machinery. In 2023 alone, almost 6,000 children were illegally working across the United States, many of them migrants. This is what a Department of Labor investigator told NBC News about what she saw in one meat processing plant.
4: And as we walked, I was just like, that's a kid. That's a kid. You have
0: to be very naive to look at some of these kids and go, they're over 18. This week, the Department of Labor announced that it would be seeking an injunction against a company, Fayette Janitorial Service, that employed children as young as 13 to clean slaughterhouse equipment. In one case, a 14-year-old had his forearm sliced to the bone. Despite all of that, according to the Economic Policy Institute, since 2021, 12 states have enacted bills to weaken child labor laws. Ten of those are Republican-led states. One of the Democratic states was New Mexico. They changed the law to let 18-year-olds serve alcohol. Republicans seem to be willing to throw children into the literal meat grinder rather than allow adult immigrants to enter and work in this country. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put it this way.
2: Many of these Republican legislatures would rather roll back child labor laws and put 11- and 13-year-olds back in the workplace that allow immigrants into their community and do what they've always done.
0: Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez will be back with me to discuss this and more coming up next.
4: MSNBC is gonna be live here all night.
1: Today's news requires more facts.
4: Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed
1: the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective.
0: This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country.
1: The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC, understand more. Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, whoa, my
2: package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once.
3: All systems go, you are clear for
2: takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. There are even some lawmakers in states like Wisconsin, Ohio and Iowa that are proposing the loosening of child labor laws in their state because they have so many jobs that are left unfulfilled. And many of these Republican legislatures would rather roll back child labor laws and put 11 and 13 year olds back in the workplace than allow immigrants into their community and do what they've always done. Republicans all
0: over the country, including last night in Kentucky, are voting to roll back child labor laws, calling it a thoughtful solution to get more workers back in the workforce. At the same time, they're blocking immigration reform that could give adult migrants the opportunity to fill those vacant jobs, many of them in dangerous industries. We're back with Congresswoman Alexandra, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Democrat from the great state, our state of New York. It's great to see you. <laughs> Thank you for staying extra long on Friday night. I. I wonder what you think the sort of ethical, moral calculation here is to say shut the borders down as these Republicans fully and, and well know they need a workforce probably of migrants to work in these really degrading, dehumanizing, dangerous jobs in places like slaughterhouses and would rather have children that are already in the country work them.
2: I mean, there is no ethical or moral calculation here that I think Republicans are working with, um, you know, putting the the first and foremost, the amount of protections that they heap on to these places that are so dangerous, themselves operating so unethically um, and making them so dangerous for any human, adult or child, to be operating in. Um, But the idea that Republicans in order to win an election, say, we need to hermetically seal the border when they know that that would be, that is economic self-sabotage to the U.S. economy. And they are saying, let's let's do it anyway. And to compensate for the negative effects, we're going to allow and throw people's kids into factories. That is what they are doing in rolling back child labor laws while being as xenophobic and anti-immigrant as, as they are, and while ginning up this this false narrative about this being a crisis. And by the way, by then also preventing and blocking any legislation yeah. that would provide not just a path to citizenship, but a path to work papers, a path to allowing people who want to work to be paired with American businesses who need people to work. And I mean, there is not only no moral calculation. There is no economic calculation. There is no logical calculation. There is only a political calculation. And that political calculation is we are going to keep whining about it. Mm -hmm. We are going to keep pretending this is a crisis while contributing to actual problems. And then we're going to block the solution so that we can campaign on it over and over and over. And we can call it caravans. We can call it migrant crises. We can call it family separation. And they will just recycle it over and over and over again in order to gin up, you know, just so much animosity and destruction in this country and racism in this country, because that's the only thing that the Republican Party even is standing on at this point.
0: You know, you, you say it's a political calculation. I think that that part is it is clear. But at the same time, it's like, If you told me that they're gonna, they're gonna. Pa- they're trying to weaken child labor laws mm-hmm. on its face mm-hmm. as a headline. That should not be politically expeditious. Mm-hmm. The reason they've managed to be able to do it is because nobody's talking about migrants anymore. Nobody's mm-hmm. talking about the value of migrants. And that includes Democrats. Absolutely. I mean, like, are you dismayed that this White House, it it acknowledges or it believes that it has a political problem on the border and it is playing decidedly on sort of the Republican turf here in terms of what it's suggested, what it's agreed to, the executive orders that have been sort of reported on thus. Far or does that? Are you dismayed by that and the the
2: sort of contours of this conversation? I, I, I am dismayed, and I'm very often find myself in shock at our current political uh, situation. Not just you know I'm. I'm rarely in shock at the depravity of the Republicans, but sometimes, and this is long what I've been saying, sometimes we have, as Democrats, have to grow a little bit of a spine around here. And part of that means defending immigration as a core value of the United States of America. Yes, on a moral and on an identity basis, but on a nuts and bolts basis, the United States, our culture, our population, our economy needs immigration like lungs need oxygen. And when you cut it off, we will start to die. When you look at other developed economies that have adopted xenophobic or more closed border policies, they enter into decades of economic stagnation. You you don't need to look far for that to happen. We do not have to be afraid to say immigration is one of the best things to happen to the United States of America. And what we need to do is champion policies to make it easier to be documented, to get a work permit. And a lot of folks think there's a line to get into this country. Maybe we should make one that works. Because without that, it's just we we see the inhumanity of a dysfunctional system. And so instead of Buying into this Republican rhetoric, because what's happening is that we're pouring dollar after dollar, cycle after cycle into an increasingly militarized border with no real solution here. And now one of the largest law enforcement agencies in the entire United States of America sits under the Department of Homeland Security. But how much better off are we today than we were five years ago? Despite having passed billions and billions and billions more dollars going into this and and buckling on this over and over again, we need a path to citizenship in the United States of America. We need to make it easier to have work permits in the United States of America. And we need to be unafraid to unapologetically defend immigration and make it easier to be an immigrant and to migrate to the United States of America because God knows we need it. Well, yeah, this is this is the story of America, the story of immigration. I have to ask you, because
0: we were talking about children and they're literally children in meat grinders mm-hmm. um, from the from the party that is the pro-family party, the party that this week is facing a sort of crisis as it has pushed the nation towards sort of a Christian nationalist agenda. They have found themselves in the crosshairs of what it means to be sort of a theocratic party mm-hmm. on the subject of IVF. Mm-hmm. It is something that Donald Trump has tried to walk back today. I think he has said, I'm calling on the Alabama legislature to act quickly to find an immediate solution to preserve the availability of IVF in the state. Republicans in the state are trying to mop up the mess. I just wonder um, what you think the sort of the dawning reality of this agenda as it concerns women on who are seeking abortions and immediate reproductive health care, people who are trying to build families and need fertility support. What does this do to the Republican Party as we hurdle towards November?
2: I mean, they they know exactly what they're doing. They knew exactly what they were doing by attacking Dobbs and attacking uh, rather attacking Roe v. Wade and attacking it in the way that they did. They're trying to walk it back now so that they don't look publicly accountable. But I want to be very clear that this was intentional and that this is exactly what Republicans have been going for. We've seen it. They've made, you have the Heritage Foundation, you have lots of folks who are on record saying, you know, not only do they want to go after abortion, not only do they want to go after reproductive freedom, they're going after IVF. They're going after contraception. We have a mifepristone, uh, ruling that is that is coming down from the Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas enriching himself from the same folks who are saying that they are trying to control women's bodies quite explicitly and going beyond that. They also want to control recreation, what they call recreational sex. Yes. Recreational sex. This is this is so clearly a patriarchal theocracy. That has embodied itself in the DNA of an entire political party in the United States of America. And as women and as any non-binary and queer person in this country, they must be defeated. They, they, there should never be room for this kind of control by force of, over another person's body in this country. And they can walk it back as much as they want. They have done this. They, who put those judges there? Not Democrats, not independents. Republicans put those judges in there. Republicans are taking women's bodies by force, and we cannot let them do it. It has to come to an end.
0: Um, I have a sense that you will be asked about this again before (laughs) it's all said and done. It is truly an honor and a pleasure to have you visit us this Friday evening in person um, to speak so eloquently and passionately about the issues that really matter in this country. Thank you so much for your time, Congresswoman. Thank you. Ocasio-Cortez, New York's 14th district. Great to see you. Thank you. When we come back this evening, the connection between this New Orleans street magician and a fake Biden robocall and what it all means for the November election. Plus, Donald Trump is preaching his own type of sermon as he prepares to win big in South Carolina tomorrow. We're gonna get into that and more with John Heilman coming up next.
1: I'm here today because I know that to achieve victory in this fight, just like in the battles of the past, we still need the hand of our Lord and the grace of almighty God. Ladies and gentlemen, with your help and God's grace, the great revival of America begins on November 5th, 2024.
0: That was Donald Trump speaking to the national religious broadcasters last night, pitching himself as a Christian warrior as he courts the evangelical vote. At one point, he promised that in a second Trump White House, quote, no one will be touching the cross of Christ. It's hard for me to get it out. (laughs) Trump is counting on evangelicals to deliver a victory for him in South Carolina's Republican primary tomorrow, where he is 28 points ahead of Nikki Haley, the state's former governor. Haley, meanwhile, is vowing to stay in the race no matter what happens tomorrow, apparently willing to wait for Trump to either implode or get convicted. Here's part of her latest ad.
1: H.R. McMaster is out. James Manis is leaving. Roger Stone is guilty. Michael Cohen is going to jail. Paul Manafort is a convicted felon.
2: Everywhere he goes, chaos follows him. You don't defeat Democrat chaos with
0: Republican chaos. Joining me now is John Heilman, MSNBC National Affairs Analyst. John, thank you for being here. Fresh off the plane from South Carolina here. Yeah. Um, first of all, can we just just take a moment to talk about Nikki Haley? Yeah. Is she basically sort of like rapture insurance in case the, the Trump ends up convicted? I mean, like, why, why does she keep saying she's going to stay in this race well past South Carolina that she may lose by 30 points?
3: I think you have two different facts going on, one, one of which is she is by everyone's reckoning in South Carolina, Republicans, Democrats, people who like her, people who don't like her. She's really ambitious. She's really calculating. It's part of why she's tacked. All over the map ideologically. She was Tea Party, then she was trying to be moderate, then she was Trumpy, then she's now anti-Trumpy. You know, she wants to be president one day, mm-hmm. and I think that there's one part of it. Uh, the 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 what was it, uh, rapture insurance. Yes, rapture insurance. Former Governor Sanford said to me uh, that Mark she's Stanford. like she's like hanging around the rim. And she's like, you know, there's a bunch of things that could happen, to Donald Trump. Donald Trump could could take himself out. His health, his next cheeseburger could take him out. He, the, the legal system could take him out. If you hang around the rim long enough, eventually a ball flies by, and you might get a chance to slam it. So that's one thing. The other thing is, I think she believes, and this is a thing that uh, that we could uh, the, the, is speculative, and we could argue about it all night. But she is saying she thinks Trump's going to lose. She's very much on the view of. Trump was a loser in 2018, 2020, 2022. He's going to lose in 2024. And there's a strategy that says, if he loses, um, there's going to be a big up for grabs moment for the Republican Party after 2024. Trump will be gone. And in that moment, she will have been in all 50 states. She will have campaigned for a lot of people. She'll have raised a lot of money for a lot of people. She will be able to stand up and say, I told you so. When everyone else thought he stuck with this guy, I said he was going to lose and he lost. And now... I'm the new generation rally around me. Now, there are a lot of people who say the future of the party after Trump is Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene. But well, who can know? But who can know? And if Mickey Haley says I think what she's trying to do is buy herself a seat at the table for what comes after Trump.
0: But you I mean you were in South Carolina. It, the report some of the reporting says she's she has not cultivated um fidelity in her own home state. She's be, because she is seen as someone with national ambitions yeah. that she is not going to be rewarded by even Republicans that might have otherwise voted for her. And I do wonder staying in the race being sort of the 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 needle or the thorn in Trump's side for several months on end, does that actually endear you to the broader Republican Party?
3: Well, look, if you think about the Republican Party right now, you basically have about a third of the party who really wants to get rid of Trump. That's those are the people who are with her, and they're going to be with her, and that's why she's still got donors. There's the, the who again they want her to hang around the rim, but they think you know they they're anti-Trump. You got a third of the party that's really pro-Trump, and then there's this third in the middle, which I you know they are all going to vote for Trump. But they're not really that enthusiastic. And it's really the biggest difference on the ground that you see. I've been in Iowa, uh, in New Hampshire, and South Carolina, as I have done for years and years and years. It's been the worst primary I've ever covered because there's this sense of, like, no energy. Mm. Even in the Trump world, it's like there's more this sort of sense of of kind of grudging acquiescence. His base, obviously, the deep base still loves him. But the things you saw in 2016 and 2020— It's much more there's this kind of just it's like a low energy jeb has infected the whole Republican Party. Everybody's just sort of like they have the attitude that some Democrats have about Joe Biden, which is kind of like. All right, I'm going to be with him because I don't like that other guy. But like, and we'll get, I'll get enthused in the fall. But the energy that cra- you've been in South Carolina, you've yeah. covered South Carolina. I've primaries. been to Trump rallies and, and Democrat like the South Carolina primary is a is yeah. a, is a fiery furnace. It's like yeah. it's crackling. It's full of energy every year. It's uh, every four years. It's it's a, it's always one of the most enthralling spectacles in all the primary calendar. And down there right now, it is just soporific. Everybody is just sort of like sitting back, going, "We all know acceptance. what's going to happen. Trump's going to win." You know, again, his base loves him, but he'll get a big, he got big crowds today. Why? He was in the state all week. Yeah. He stays out of the state all week long. And then he has a big rally the night before the primary. And of course he fills an arena because he hasn't done any other events. Everybody who likes him in the state has to wait till Friday night to show up to see him. So he's like, I got a big crowd. You're like, well, you know, you did one event in seven days.
0: He is also like, he's not necessarily directly quoting scripture, but Wow. But 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 no one I mean Donald Trump saying no one will be touching the cross of Christ. You you had one of the most famous moments with him when he was a candidate in twenty sixteen, asking whether he was an old testament guy or a new testament guy. And uh, he said both, both. about equal. But like equal. evangelicals realize the disingenuousness of this, right? I mean, are they buying it? or or do or do they think he's not just reading from teleprompter? I think
3: I you know look I don't I don't know this has been one of the, the 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 conventional wisdom on this which I basically think is right is that evangelicals decided that Donald Trump was going to give he that he had decided to mortgage his his judicial picks to the to the federal society and he was going to give them a, a an anti roe court and they got that. And I think you know people have their the evangelicals are there's a lot of more true believers and there're a lot of more like we've been fighting To Christianize this nation for a long time. And we've never had a real ally in the White House. The ones who said that we thought they were really godly and with us, you know, George W. Bush, evangelical, genuine evangelical. He didn't try to overturn Roe v. Wade. He wasn't going to do that. They got Donald Trump in there. They're like, well, maybe he's not really a man of God, but he's actually doing stuff that we care about. And, you know, this obviously leads us into whether that's good for the party and the politics of it, all of it, yeah. the backlash that it's unleashed. Uh, that's clearly has, is, it could be one of the reasons why they, why they lose not just at the presidential level, but at every level, uh, down ticket this time around. But for, if you're an evangelical voter who's been in the fight for, Christian policies for years, decades. For, for decades. Donald Trump's the guy who he says it. You know, he says he delivers. Even even
0: they'll, if he says it, it on, the, on in script and doesn't believe it in his heart, he's doing it in action. 100%. John Heilman, my friend, it's great to have you back in New York City for however long you're here before you go on to the next one.
3: South Carolina was not the same without you, Alex. I, I mean... gotta tell you. I gotta tell you. Basically, nothing is the same without Alex oh. Wagner. But South Carolina, I've never seen anybody uh, devour that low country <laughs> cuisine the way you used to.
0: That is me. Yes. That is me, my friend. And a Sazer- one day. And a Sazerac. Oh, mm. lordy. It's Friday night. John Heilman, thank you for your time, your brilliance, your genius, your mention of Sazeracs. And tomorrow. I will be joining my MSNBC colleagues as we cover all of the action, or lack thereof, in the South Carolina Republican primary, but not action in an exciting way. That'll be live starting at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. It is a great way to spend a Saturday night and have a Sazerac at home. We have one more story for you tonight about a street magician who landed in the middle of a presidential election scandal that could have real repercussions in November. That's next. Do you remember that fake Biden robocall that thousands of people got just before the New Hampshire primary? It tried to convince people not to write Joe Biden's name on their ballots in the Democratic race. Here's a bit of it.
3: What a bunch of malarkey. You know the value of voting Democratic when our votes count. It's important that you save your vote
1: for the November election.
0: Someone has finally come forward and claimed responsibility for making that call. Magician Paul Carpenter has come forward and told NBC News that he was paid to make the fake audio for a consultant connected to Democratic presidential campaign of Dean Phillips. Now, the Phillips campaign denies involvement and expressed outrage about the consultant's alleged involvement here. The consultant himself told NBC that an op-ed he plans to publish tomorrow will explain all. But in a lot of ways, who ordered the creation of this one particular fake robocall is less important than how easy it was to make. Paul Carpenter, the magician, showed NBC News how he did it. It took him 20 minutes and cost him $1. This technology exists. It is out there. It is easy to use, and it is impossible to imagine that it won't be used again. Joining me now is Alex Seitzwald, senior politics reporter for NBC News and the person who broke this story. Alex, first of all, hats off for breaking this story. I mean, I've First, tell me, you worked, you worked, you sat with the magician, Paul Carpenter, and he showed you how he did this. How easy was it? And do you think you could do it if you wanted to on your own?
4: Yeah, Alex, that was really my big takeaway from this story. Uh, It's very eerie to sit in a Marriott lobby with a guy you met five minutes ago from the internet and have him spend a few minutes uh, and then type a script and have what sounds like your voice coming out of a computer saying something that you never said, which is exactly what he did. And uh, it was not as part of a sophisticated, well funded, you know, uh, cloak and dagger operation. This is essentially a guy goofing around on the internet. He was paid $150 to do this uh, for the Biden campaign or, or uh, to spoof the Biden voice. And it became this huge national phenomenon. Uh, And as he told me, anybody can do this. I'm not showing you anything that you can't learn on YouTube. So I think when we think about this technology, we shouldn't just think about high-level operatives like a campaign using them, but that you know some teenagers uh, looking for a laugh on a Friday night or gadflies, foreign operators, anyone could be using this technology to post stuff. And I, I really think we're not prepared for what that's going to mean for politics in our democracy.
0: Yeah, we may not be. And it doesn't sound like the campaigns are either. right? I mean, the Phillips campaign, if you believe what they're saying, had no idea this was going on. This was like a sort of third party operator who um, retained, if you will, the magician to make this robocall. But I mean, to what degree, as a political reporter, have you seen any interest on the part of campaigns and sort of understanding the potential of A.I. to really upend things in the
4: election? Yeah, I mean, this is the first known example of a malicious use of AI deepfakes in the wild uh, in an American campaign. This hasn't happened. We've been you know, hearing lots of warnings about it, but this is the first time it's actually come to pass, and uh, it shows how messy these situations will likely be. The guy who commissioned this call, his name is Steve Kramer. He's a fairly well-known uh, Democratic, mostly Democratic operative, been working on dozens of campaigns for the t- past 20 years. He was paid over two hundred fifty thousand dollars by Dean Phillips's campaign, but specifically to work on ballot access uh, in two states, which is basically just getting signatures. They say he had no uh, direction, no authority to do this; that he was basically acting totally rogue. Um, we'll see what he has to say when he comes forward. I've texted with him, but he. Won't reveal any part of his story yet, Um, but you know, campaigns employ dozens, hundreds of people who might think that this would benefit their candidate, even if there's no um, direction from higher up. And I think that's the really tricky part because for a campaign itself, I think this is always going to be a little bit too high risk, low reward to be an official thing that you would do, because the the prospect of getting caught and the, the fallout from it is just too big. But for somebody you know, loosely connected to your campaign that's very difficult to control.
0: Alex Seitzwald, great reporting, Alex. Thanks for uh, having a little Friday night time with us to talk about
4: all of it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. That is our show for tonight.